This morning's Bible reading is on page 1013 of the Pew Bibles and on page 1621 of the large print Bibles. It is taken from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 33. Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be the first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. It's great to be here at the 9 a.m. service. Unlike many that go before me, I can honestly, honestly say I haven't just ride out of bed. I have three young ones. The reality is I have to wrestle them out the front door. So looks may be deceiving if I look slightly ruffled or bedraggled or have smears on my clothes. That's just the kids. In my day, started a long time ago. And so my attention is very much, you know, on what's for lunch. But enough of me and my rumbling stomach. Where are we? Look at the first, first slide. Okay, we find ourselves this morning in the midst of the Gospel of Mark. We're in the ninth chapter of a 16-chapter Gospel. David Pawson suggests that we can nicely dissect the Gospel of Mark into three parts. And when I was reflecting on this, the image um, of a ski slope and a ski jumper came to mind. And I thought I'd just share that with you by way of context. The first part, if you like, the downhill slope. Well, this is the frantic kind of movement from one teaching to one miracle to a casting out of a demon. And this was the first two and a half years of Jesus' teaching. And it took place you know, from chapters one, if you like, to chapter eight. And it was based in the north. And then we get a slight, um, a slight bottoming out of the slope. And this very much is the if you like, the interlude. This is where chapters 8 and 10 meet. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. And Jesus, like a good parent, is trying to make sure that his children understand what they need to before he departs. And then looking forward, as the, as the bottom out just goes into a, a little incline, we get the last chapters of the gospel, which really is only the last week of Jesus' life. And then it kind of ends, the gospel, at that point where Jesus is, you know, 
born in the resurrection, but a sense of anticipation of what is to come next. So we find ourselves this morning in Capernaum. It's in the north of the country. And, um, and Tom Wright suggests that in this opening passage, we're in a house. It's quite possibly that we're in Jesus' house. And um, we find ourselves at the start in a dialogue where there's disciples are arguing about who was the greatest. This is where I just wanted to focus initially. You know, what's the challenge here? Why were they arguing about who is the greatest? And what does it mean for us? Well, my, my instant reaction was to think about um, a slightly charged up, pumped up scene, which you might remember, where the boxer Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest. I said I was even before I knew I was. Such confidence, such a bold declaration. And Ali spent most of his life trying to prove to himself and to the world that he was the greatest. Ironically, I wonder if his strength and confidence was actually just a cover for his insecurity and an apparent need to justify to himself and to others who he was. Like any great fighter, Ali was defeated in the end. And actually his fame and his status will only ever be temporary. Now we are not all sporting legends. Though I have dreamed of being one, I'm not. But I think and suspect that we may all have lived a life trying to pursue excellence, and perhaps we're still doing that. Through my education and through my career, I've always had a good sense of why I am relative to others. I've always known how good I am at sport, my grades, you know, how well I did at university, where someone else has come from, their university, their pedigree, what firm, what organization they work for. We all kind of know relative to one another where we stand. In my last organization, um, there's something called performance management. You're probably familiar with it. We have a, had a talent pool and a succession plan. And at an aggregated level, employees were ranked and filed based on ability and potential. You know, we all had a good idea of where we stood. You would look up and you'd look down across the organization. Now, the danger with the pursuit of excellence or the desire to be the best or even the greatest is basically how we view ourselves and how we view others and how we view God within this. The two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart and to secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And when we become self-absorbed, it becomes very difficult to find God in this. And it, finds very dif- it becomes very difficult you know, to look at others above ourselves. By positioning ourselves above others, we start to feel superior and to look down on them. It can feel uncomfortable, I think, to reflect on this, because I think it's a very real challenge for us all. And actually, I suggest that it's quite a fine balancing act. There are risks associated with going too far in either direction. If we never aspire to realize our potential, you know, to use the gifts that God has given us, to release our talents, to compete, then I think we've probably wasted all that we've had. But if we go too far the other way, then there is real danger ahead. 
In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And Richard Foster in a celebration of discipline said, covetousness is what we call ambition. It is natural to aspire to do well, to dream big, to want to secure the next significant role. But I think C.S. Lewis would caution us and remind us that we have to stay humble in this pursuit. We have to use the gifts that God has given us wisely. And we have to give God the credit when success follows. And we have to remember that we are all equal in God's eyes. Despite our power or position, we are all just equal. And I think Richard Foster would warn us to check our hearts to ensure that the things that we aspire to align with what God would want us to aspire to. And we think of James 1.27, we have to watch out that we are not polluted by the things of this world. Ken Costa, who is an influential figure in business and church today, he's written a book called God at Work. He gives some thoughts on how we can get that balance right. And to quote him here, He says that Christian ambition is the passionate and contented pursuit of challenging yet attainable God-given objectives. I think the key point here is that our objectives remain aligned with God and that that we don't get distracted and chase after things that are not of him. For instance, my objective this morning is to try and to try and speak as well as I can empowered by the Holy Spirit, you know, not doing things in my strength, but in his strength alone. But if I were to get distracted and to, you know, to contemplate how many downloads this talk might get or to, to think about how much praise and recognition I might receive, I'd have missed the point. I'd have started to chase my own objectives. Why don't we just take a few seconds just to pause, and just to think about what are some of those objectives that we have and hold on to? How do they align to what God might want us to hold on to. To move on then, reading on, in verses 35, the disciples just don't get it. Jesus brings his disciples into the house and effectively decides that they need a bit of small group time. He was mindful that his disciples, whilst having been you know, close to the action, were slightly bamboozled by all that they were witnessing. Shane Warne was a famous Australian cricketer and spin bowler, and batsmen used to dread it when they came out to face him because they could not predict what ball he was going to bowl. He could move it dramatically from one way to the next, and the last ball and the next ball were never the same. Shane Warne took great delight in tying batsmen up in knots and making them look rather silly. Jesus knew that he was turning his, the disciples' thinking upside down. He was unpicking the way they'd been brought up to believe and to think. 
Few Jews believed that God was sent a Messiah, and if he did, that he would send him to, send him to suffer, nor that he would take such a lowly position on earth. Jesus was the servant king. Rather than being born into riches, he was born into rags. A palace was swapped for a manger and a house in Capernaum. Splendor was substituted for a simple life. Jesus was shaping a new way, a new perspective. He was molding the leaders of tomorrow. When he was gone, Jesus knew that the disciples had a huge role to play. Indeed, in a conversation with Peter, he said, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Since appointing his disciples, Jesus had been carefully preparing them for what was to come. He was aware that he was mixing parables with the literal, and earlier in the chapter he predicted his death. And I think the disciples and the onlookers would have struggled to work out, was that a true statement or was that just a story? It was beyond what they could imagine. Jesus knew that the ski jump was just the beginning. The real thrill was going to start at the point of takeoff when the gospel finished. And the disciples were going to need to learn how to fly and how to land the jump. And I suggest that I think quite possibly Jesus was a tad disappointed and frustrated at this point that the disciples hadn't fully understood what he was teaching them. He may have recognized that this was going to be harder and slower than he had first thought. And so sitting them down in verse 34, he calls them out. And a sense of conviction likely occurred in the minds of the twelve, like a flashback from school when the teacher caught you out. In our passage, Jesus was quick and clear in his response. He said, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. Sorry, I'm too far. Apologies. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. I don't think this is a new message for the disciples. In fact, I think Jesus was realizing that they hadn't fully got a message previously delivered. So the passage you just saw. In Mark 8, um, Jesus, Jesus described the way of the cross. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Jesus knew that if the church was to be to be established, and to grow as intended, then the disciples had to understand a few things. Firstly, they had to know that no one would be greater than the Son of Man. And secondly, that they were royal courtiers in waiting. They did not need to worry about their status. You know, they had a promise that was there for everyone, but they did need to realize that it was there for everyone and not just them. The way of the cross is one of sacrifice. Jesus was the servant of all. He loved as no one had loved before. You know, in the feeding of the 5,000, 
when he was tired and hungry and the crowds came. You know, he felt a sense of compassion for them. And so he went again, putting his knees down. You know, he went and taught and healed some more. And on the act of the cross, we get the ultimate sacrifice. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She said, Do things for people, not because of what they are or what they do in return, but because of who you are. You know, she did not do works for work's sake. She knew who she was in Jesus. She knew the way of the cross. She acted with no regard for her status, but in every regard for others. You know, her life of service earned her the right to speak to the world, and because of who she was, they listened. Jesus earned the right to be taken seriously. When he overcame death on the cross, suddenly what he had sown in the lives of the disciples would come to life. Moving on. In verses 36 to 37, we read, Jesus took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. At the time when Jesus was saying these words, you know, children were seen as a blessing within a family, but they did not really carry any status beyond that. And so I think here it's a direct link between the previous, um, previous verse, where Jesus was trying to emphasize the point about being the last and the servant of all. Indeed, in Luke 9, verses 46 to 47, where he tells the same story, the author says that, you know, Jesus quoted as saying that children were, in effect, seen to be the least. Jesus was trying to jolt his disciples out of their thinking about needing status. He wanted them to know that they were no, they were no better than the next person. Anyone who accepts Jesus receives the kingdom of God. He wanted them to adopt this childlike position of being the least. The reference to children here in verse 37 continues later on in this chapter and into chapter 10. And so I don't want to labor the point other than to refer us to, uh, to Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. This passage says that we are all children of God, made in his image and adopted into his sonship. As such, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, there is a slight but, and the but hinges on the need to follow in the way of the cross. Back to that image of a fine balancing act. And actually, as we were singing the, uh, the, first, the first hymn this morning, there's some lovely words. I think it was um, gold, like, like gold in obedience. You can probably remember that than I can. And that actually just leads on to the next, um, the next picture I had. Eric Liddell, who was a, you know, he won a gold at the Olympics. I think he you know, gives a fine example of how he kind of lived out a life of obedience. You know, he ran not for crowds, not for country, not for fame, not for glory. He ran for God 
and he was obedient you know, to God in the way he lived out his vocation. Moving on to the final part of the passage, we read, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. On this occasion, it is John's turn to get caught up with not fully understanding the situation. He can only see and understand part of the picture. In this well-known image, we see a girl with a red coat. And that perhaps is all we see. But when we zoom out, we realize that actually there's a war going on behind this girl. In our passage, Jesus was aware of what was to come. He knew that a war was on and that the disciples hadn't yet fully realized this. John was still focused with his kind of perspective. You know, he was one of the, one of the appointed ones, one of the 12, and he was struggling to kind of grasp that someone else might be doing Jesus' works in his name. He didn't like it. But Jesus had no problem with it. You know, he was comfortable with the fact that people had seen, they had heard, and they had believed, and were now having a go. They were giving their faith a go. You know, we, they were all children of God, all moving in the Spirit of God. And Jesus was glad to have them on his side at a time when his enemies were rising and the opposition was coming against him. And that's where we finish this morning. So my final thoughts or our final challenge this morning, I think we are all called to reflect on what it means to be the least and to serve one another. To be people who are not caught up in what we are, but instead are focused on who we are in Jesus. To be people who have not got polluted by the world. May that be our prayer today and this week.